Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. Oh, by the way, before I begin, I wanted to thank you all for your prayers. It was a very uh, hard weekend for me physically. And I'm thankful for the prayers of the saints to encourage and to lift me. Uh, I had a bout of the influenza. I don't know which one. But uh, the doctor kind of like flipped a coin and got the right medication for me, I suppose. I know that was the Lord. Uh, And chronic, uh, acute, I should say, bronchitis. But the, the first day of, of my infirmity, it was more, I, I, I felt I was, I had pneumonia, you know, I was that, 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 uh, that bad. I, I'm thankful that God gave me the opportunity to rest a little bit. <laughs> we need rest, you know. <laughs> I'm always telling you that, and I oftentimes don't do it myself. Sometimes it takes the Lord to do it for me. But I do appreciate your prayers very much. I thank you for them. Verse 7, we're only looking at verses 7 through 9 tonight. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. As we continue in our study of Isaiah 53, we have considered in some detail the price that was paid by the suffering servant, whom we know to be our Lord Jesus Christ, paid on behalf, on our behalf, at Calvary. And as we examine these next three verses, the focus of our attention is going to be on the attitude of our Savior in the face of suffering. Think about that statement for just a moment. The attitude of our Savior in the face of suffering. Think about your attitude in the face of suffering. And then think about the attitude of our Lord Jesus Christ in the face of suffering. And as we've stated before, any kind of repetition is to be taken with the utmost of significance and importance. For the statement is made here in one verse. He opened not his mouth, and it is made twice in one verse. This had uh, and has to suggest that the principal aspect of Christ's attitude toward his sufferings was silence. Think about that. It suggests that the principal aspect, the preeminent aspect of Christ's attitude toward His sufferings was silence. Now that brings to mind something to me right now. It brings to mind that when we may suffer a little bit of discomfort in this life, we oftentimes complain. And oftentimes vocally, and oftentimes loudly, and oftentimes a lot. But the aspect, the principal, preeminent aspect of Christ's attitude toward his sufferings was silence. It has been said of the Lord that never a man spoke like he did. But it is also true that never a man was silent as he was. And I want you to think about that. 
in light of what you know Jesus suffered for our sins. The first phrase of verse 7 begins to give us an indication of why this was. Notice that it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now, the Hebrew word for oppressed here, it is the word uh, nagash. Literally, it means to press, to drive, to exert demanding pressure. Oppressive. You see, where the word press is even in the word oppress. Oppressive exertion. It was the word that was used of the Egyptian taskmasters who would stand with their whips to make the children of Israel work. The slaves of Egypt. They pressed them and oppressed them. They drove them. They exerted demanding pressure upon them. But it's interesting that there was also the word that was used to describe how a person would get a debtor to pay what was owed them. If someone owed you money in those days and times, you had the right to exert pressure, in other words, to exact a debt. And the word exact a debt, oftentimes you find that in the, in the scriptures, the Hebrew word would still be the same, nagash, to exert pressure to give back your money, to give back the debt. And you think, what did Jesus ever do to be oppressed as He was? As if He owed the debt to a whole world of sinners. What did He, what did he ever do that caused both Jew and Gentile to exact this debt? And yet the most important word in the phrase isn't so much the word oppressed, as it is the word afflicted. For the word is referring to the state of the one being oppressed. And so the word anah, afflicted, means very simply to humble oneself. And this is significant here. To humble oneself. And so the true idea of the phrase can be put this way. While he was oppressed, he patiently and humbly endured it, yet he opened not his mouth. Isn't that a wonderful picture? It's an awesome picture. While he was oppressed, while he was pressed, while he he was uh, driven, while he was exerting... Uh, or having exerted a, a, a tremendous pressure upon him, he patiently and humbly endured it, and yet he opened not his mouth. He never opened his mouth to defend himself. That is a real understanding here, both times. He never opened his mouth to defend himself. He remained silent before his accusers, except to glorify his Father in heaven by declaring his lordship. And his kingship. We travel through time from Isaiah 53 to Matthew 26. Turn to Matthew 26 in your Bibles. In Matthew 26, verse 62, before Caiaphas, says the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? You see, all these charges are being laid down on Jesus. False charges, mostly. Do you you answer nothing? What is it? These men testify against you. But Jesus kept silent, notice. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And notice that Jesus said to him, It is as you said. 
When did Jesus speak? It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He spoke only when He glorified the Father, you see, by declaring His Lordship. That was His Lordship. Are you the Christ? The Son of God? He said, it is, as you say. By the way, Jesus just made it clear He is Messiah. I don't understand this new thought of some people to say that Jesus never declared Himself to be Messiah. I'll get back to that later. In Mark chapter 15, turn there in the next Gospel. In Mark 15, verses 2 through 5, it says, Then Pilate asked him, now he's before Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. He was silent, you see. And then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. He kept silent, except when he spoke to glorify his Father in heaven, declaring his kingship. You see, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And in that declaration, what was he saying? In that declaration, he was saying, he is Messiah. He was silent except when to remain. Silent would have been to deny his deity and his claim to kingship. But before the whole band of soldiers, in Matthew 27, go back to Matthew now. I know this is almost like tennis. It's the Australian Open this week, so keeping with what's going on currently. Go back to Matthew 27. Verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and when they had twisted a crown of thorns they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying hail king of the Jews and then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head if you'll notice he never said anything before Herod In Luke 23, the third gospel account. In Luke 23, verses 8 through 12, it says, Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Was he glad because Jesus was the Messiah? Was he glad that Jesus was the Savior of the world? It says, For he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. He was looking for a court jester. And then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus kept silent. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, interestingly enough, that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously they had been at enmity with each other. The truth of Jesus Christ oftentimes makes some strange bedfellows. But Jesus never spoke a word. He kept silent before Herod and it made him mad. And yet on Calvary, for nearly three hours, while hell did its best by dishing out its worst and letting loose all of its dark fury on the Lord, he kept silent until... He could keep silent no more. 
In Matthew 27, verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as it goes on to say in verse 7. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. To reinforce his silence in his defense of himself, Isaiah expands the phrase to include a picture of a lamb. A lamb that was on its way to its slaughter, and a sheep that was ready to be sheared. The Israelites, they understood this picture. How often did they see a little lamb taken as a sacrifice in the temple? How often did they see the priest take this lamb and shear it and the lamb just stood there, maybe a little ba here and a little ba there? Silently it stood while the wool was taken from its body and then to be taken to be slaughtered as a sacrifice. They understood this picture because in both cases, you see, the gentle nature of the sheep is what is stressed here. The gentle nature of the sheep. Jesus is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, humbly and quietly submitted to His death. That's the point. That's the picture. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, humbly and quietly submitted to His death. It's interesting that Peter would state to the church of its calling. The church is calling. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 21. He says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committing or committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. We'll see that in a moment in our text. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And, and that's the answer to this. He wasn't committing himself to his enemies, to his shearers, to those who were going to slaughter him. He was committing himself to him who judges righteously. He was committing himself to his Father. And this is why. He did not threaten. This is why. He did not revile in return. Did you hear all those reviling statements or things that were done toward Jesus? He didn't revile in return. He never spoke a deceitful word in his life. And we can thank God for that because that just points to us how holy He was as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our Lord, as our Master, as our King, and as our God. committed no sin. 
humbly, quietly, like a sheep before its shears is silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. You see, if Jesus doesn't do this, we're all in trouble. If Jesus doesn't go through this process, we're as good as dead. What a good time tonight to thank God for what Jesus Christ did for us. Now think about this. They, speaking of Israel and us, what we have just studied previously, last week, they, Israel and us, were like sheep that had gone astray. But the suffering servant, like a lamb, had been slaughtered in their and our place. So you see the connection. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But then notice verse 8, if you will, of our text. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. We're reminded of that throughout this whole chapter. For the transgressions of my people. This is Isaiah speaking. But it's us as well. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. As as verse 7 spoke of Christ's silence in the face of suffering, so verse 8 could speak of his silence when being illegally tried and condemned to death. This this verse isn't saying, as some have suggested, that, that God delivered his servant out of his dreadful anguish and took it to himself. That that just doesn't fit in the context of the whole passage. The emphasis isn't so much on his being taken away as it is on the words prison and judgment. In fact, the better rendering of this phrase is by opposition and judgment he was taken away. Now some of the more modern translations really have the tenses or you know the, the positions of the words in the right place. By oppression and judgment. And the word for prison there is is the word oppression here. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. You see, he was taken away, or, if you will, he was separated from the earth after oppression and judgment. So you see the picture. Jesus was taken to prison. Jesus was taken into judgment. And then he's taken away. So Jesus wasn't granted, by the way, Jesus wasn't granted a a peaceful ending, as it were. But he went as one persecuted to death and as a sentenced criminal. That's how Jesus went to his death, as a sentenced criminal. But the word, the word prison or oppression is here because it refers to the mistreatment by men that we described earlier. In today's courts, a person can be found guilty of terrible crimes, but, but if it can be proved that something in the trial was illegal, the case must be tried again. Well, everything about his trial was illegal, and yet Jesus did not appeal for another trial. You see, there could have been a lot of voices that could have stood up 
And, and we could even, you know, think about this. We, we could even have that, that sense of fair play or that sense of saying, you know, something's not right here. Somebody should have stood up. Where were those disciples? Where was Peter when he was so bold about saying that he'd take care of Jesus and then he's, he's the first one to run? The sense of fair play says, oh, listen, somebody should have stood up for Jesus. Folks, if Jesus doesn't stand for himself, we're in trouble. Get the picture of what's taking place here. We cannot get in the way of what God is allowing to do with His only begotten Son. So Jesus does not appeal. He is silent. He doesn't defend Himself. As a matter of fact, to Peter He says this in John 18 verse 11. This should have made made it clear in our minds. This is an issue of fair play. Folks, in this life, nothing's fair. Right? So think, in John 18, verse 11, so Peter, I'm sorry, so Jesus said to Peter, (coughs) excuse me, he didn't say that. (coughs) He said, put your sword into the sheath. You remember that situation? What was Peter trying to do? He was trying to defend Jesus from the 600 soldiers and the high priests and all that came and the sword, you know, you'd think that Peter went, went like this and there's this big, huge, you know, he goes like this and it's about this long. Whoops. <laughs> and he still cuts off this guy's ear. Misses. I mean, did, would you have gotten, you know, to fight everybody and just cut ears off? What is he, a bullfighter? And Jesus said to him, put your sword into the sheath. But notice what he says. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Shall I not drink that cup? You see, with no word of complaint, he gave himself into the hands of wicked men to be crucified because there was no other way by which guilty sinners could be saved. No other way. And then the question is asked, and who will declare his generation? You see that in verse 8? Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Like a criminal, the servant of the Lord had been brought before a judge and condemned to death, cut off from the land of the living. By the way, this is the first suggestion in the prophecy that the suffering Savior would die. The same term is used in Daniel 9, verse 26, when in that great prophecy of Daniel it says, And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So you see now the correlation here of these two passages, these two great passages are speaking of the same Messiah, the suffering servant. To be cut off, you see, that's the same term. Messiah shall be cut off. To be cut off gives strong indication not only of a violent and and premature death, but also the just judgment of God and not simply the cruel, tyrannical judgment of men. What was God judging? Was He judging His only begotten Son? Or was He judging the sins of men? It also demonstrates again that Israel is not being spoken of as the suffering servant. As some Jews believe. Because as badly as Israel has suffered in its history... She has never been cut off from the land of the living. That's an important point. She has endured, even as the Lord promised Abraham in, Gem- uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. My mom got all messed up there. Genesis 17, 7 and 8. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. Notice, it's not, 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 a, not a temporary covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. 
To be uh, God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. Folks, God is not an Indian giver. And he says, and I will be their God. You see how quick people give up on, on Israel and on God and His promises? That today, we, you know, we have replacement theology and people saying, oh, listen, uh, you know, Israel lost its opportunities. You know, it's, uh, you know God's not blessing them anymore. Now, now the church is to receive all the blessings of Israel. Uh, that's just hogwash. You're saying that the Lord is, is capricious. This makes, you know, decisions and says one thing and, well, I said it then, but, ah, uh, you know. It's not God. He, he, he said, I'm going to give me an everlasting covenant. Everlasting means everlasting. Last time I checked. So it's not Israel here. The suffering servant is not Israel. Let's make that clear now. Now, there is one other aspect to consider in the question who will declare his generation? Some teach that this refers to Messiah being childless. Because there was, there was no one to declare his generation. Well, well, that's true. And while that is true and is biblical enough, you know, there's biblical evidence enough to disprove the Da Vinci Code, folks. Alright? That Da Vinci Code idiocy. There is still something deeper. There's something deeper still. The question can also be phrased this way. Who shall declare his manner of life? Who shall declare his manner of life? God wanted his manner of life declared. God the Father wanted the manner of life of his only begotten Son Yeshua, Jesus Christ, declared. And that before his judges. Do you remember Pilate's wife? By the way, that's not Lot's wife. Got to get the right to get the right you know testament, testament, you know. Lot's wife was in the Old Testament. She's the one that turned into salt. Because she turned around, you know, and they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and that area. And, and the Lord told them, don't look back. And she looked back and, boom, she turned into salt. That's why I'm going to put the, this, the remember Lot's wife behind, uh, on top of that clock back there. Nobody turn around and check me out on time. All right? So I'm not talking about remembering Lot's wife. I said, do you remember Pilate's wife? Pilate, the Roman governor. Now in the New Testament, all right? Matthew 27 again. And in verse 19, very important thought here. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. She said, Have nothing to do with this or with that just man, for I have suffered many things. She called him a just man. Now, go down a few verses in, in, in verse 24, after all this other stuff is taking place. And there in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather the, that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. He washes his hands. A minister of the blood of this just person. That was a declaration. Who will declare his manner of life? In Luke 23, even while Jesus on the, was on the cross, with the other criminals around him, in Luke 23, verse 39, it says that one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. 
But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The King James says, this man has done nothing amiss. This man has done nothing wrong. That was a declaration of the manner of life of Jesus. Even on the cross, the declaration of His manner of life was made from, from prison's oppression, you see. From prison's oppression to every sort of illegal judgment until being nailed to the cross, He endured it all as our sin offering. For the transgression of My people, it says, He was stricken. On the cross, He endured all that our sins deserved. On the cross, He endured all that our sins deserved. That's verse 8, in a nutshell. And then in verse 9, it says, They made His grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now it sounds a little, little off here. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. What does that mean? Well, it was the intent of the adversaries of the suffering servant, the high priest, uh, you know, the, all, all the, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ruling council. All those uh, Sadducees and Pharisees who were against Christ. It, it was the intent of these adversaries of Jesus that his burial should be as disgraceful as his death. That was their intent. That's why they hung him on the cross. That's, that's why they let Rome hang him on a Roman cross. Because you know how Pilate washed his hands? This was the Sanhedrin and the council and, and, and the priests and all, washing their hands. Now he's on a Roman cross. Who cares what, he does, what they do with him after this? You see. It's Rome's problem now. Let Rome take care of it. Literally, we are told that he was assigned a grave with the wicked. That's, that's what it means there in the first part of verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked. In other words, they assigned him a grave with the wicked. But, with the rich at his death, is what eventually happens. You see, in Israel in particular, uh, and just to go back to this understanding of, of having a grave with the wicked, uh, in Israel in particular, a dishonorable burial was viewed as a dreadful fate. Now we got a little picture of that back in chapter 14 of Isaiah when dealing, you know, with, with the type of, um, of, of Satan and Lucifer. Of course, it was also representing a real king, but, but here it says all the kings in the nations, verse 18, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain thrust through with a sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. In other words, a lot of times they just found a place, you know, some trash heap somewhere. That's where the body went. Where it could be burned and get gotten rid of. Isaiah 26, verse 14, the same idea here in the sense that it says that uh, they are dead, they will not live. These are the, the oppressors of Israel. Uh, they are deceased, they will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Again, this, this is the same idea of taking a dishonorable body, a dishonorable death, and just getting rid of the body. So they assigned his grave with the wicked. But God had other plans. It is important to note that the burial of Jesus Christ is as much a part of the gospel as his death and resurrection. The burial of Jesus Christ is just as much a part of the gospel because it was proof that he actually died. 
Please understand that. Because there are certain people today who believe that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. They kind of took him down and then they took him off to the side and they kind of revived him. And I don't know, did some kind of rain dance or something. I don't know, but they did something to revive him, you know. That's how he came back. He never really died. Because who can die and rise again from the dead? Oh, I can tell you somebody. Jesus did. He died. And He was buried. That's proof. You see, in the definition of the Gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by the way, if you don't know this, please mark it down, but if you want the definition of the Gospel, the Gospel is defined for us very clearly by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 5. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word. Notice that he says, uh, uh, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word, or that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Is it possible that some people can believe in vain? Worthlessly? Yes, it is. It just says so. So let's go on. Verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. That here's the gospel now. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. If you like to make outlines, here's point one. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Point two. And that he was buried. Point three. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Point four. And that He was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve. Don't you think that's a tremendous outline of the Gospel? It outlines it clearly for everyone. So you want to know what the Gospel is? There it is. Now you have no excuse when someone asks you, What's the Gospel? I know where it is. What is it again? First Corinthians. 15. Remember that. The Roman authorities, by the way, the Roman authorities would have never released the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus if he were not dead. Turn to John 19. <coughs> Again, well, we might as well go ahead and, 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 and strengthen the understanding that the burial of Jesus is just as much, is just as, much a part of the gospel. John 19, verse 38 says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now let me add one other thought here in in Mark 15, verse 46. Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. We needed also to see what Joseph of Arimathea did in, 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 in bringing forth this, you know, making this tomb. So something else to consider. A wealthy man like Joseph would never carve out a tomb for himself so near a place of execution, particularly since his home was miles away. Arimathea wasn't around the block, wasn't even close by. The tombs of families were always close by where you lived. Isn't that interesting? It had to have been prepared for Jesus all along. Could you imagine someday Joseph of Arimathea just walking, you know, by this particular 
area and realizing here's a nice place for a tomb. I don't know for whom, but you know, I think I'll buy it. And he bought it. And then he had his rock cutters come and <laughs> carve out a nice tomb. Well, it's there for somebody. And then someday, someday Jesus comes along and <laughs> Joseph is touched by the message of the gospel, by the message of the kingdom of God and of Christ. He begins to realize now there's some reason why. You oftentimes did, have you oftentimes done things that you didn't really know why at one point, but later on you realized God was using you to prepare something for His glory? You didn't know it at the time. God's so precious. Because then sometimes there's just some things that we don't need to know. We're so inquisitive. Why, Lord? Why, why, why? If God does something, you know, wants to do something through you, I don't know why, but, you know, maybe there's a, there's a reason somewhere down the line. It had been prepared for Jesus. All of it. The whole of the prophecy, by the way, right down to the spices and cloths, was marvelously fulfilled. Not by Joseph, but by God Himself. God Himself had prepared that tomb. The conclusion of the verse, verse 9, gives reason for this providential act that prepared a burial of honor for the Lord's servant instead of the disgrace intended for him. <laughs> and here's the reason. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, it says. <laughs> Give me a moment. God the Father rewarded his innocence. God the Father rewarded the innocence of His only begotten Son, and the first sign of this is the place of His grave. His innocence is described in terms of His deeds and of His words. The reason the external, which is the grave, takes the foreground is that He is being contrasted with the wicked with whom He had been classified. He had been classified with the wicked, yet He's not going to be buried with them. He's going to be buried in a place of honor. That's the exaltation of the suffering servant. But he was not like them. He was not a doer of violence. He was not a deceiver. He, his were deeds of righteousness. His words were wholly true. How often do we see in the Scriptures that Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Truly, truly, I say unto thee. And his innermost thoughts were spotlessly pure. You know, we could spend all night talking about the deeds of the Lord and, 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 the, and, and the very words of Jesus. But what about His thoughts? Just His thoughts alone. Think of this. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, Many, O Lord my God, are Your wonderful works which You have done, and Your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to You in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. God's thoughts toward us. We can't even number them. Now I'm thinking about this myself. I'm thinking about this in light of Jesus going to the cross for us. Psalm 92 verse 5 says, O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. You see, we don't separate His works and His Word from His thoughts. Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. What a beautiful thought. Have you ever thought about that? When you awake, you're still with Him? <laughs> I'm still with you, Lord. Wow. Whoa. That's cool. I'm still with you. That's 
because of how much Jesus loves us that we're still with Him. And then my favorite verse of all, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, much has already been said of Christ's words and deeds, but what about his thoughts? What were his thoughts on the cross for you? What were his thoughts? You know, Jesus remained the Holy One in spite of all the pain and all the suffering. Jesus remained the Holy One, the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And in recognition of that, you see, He was buried with the rich at His death and would indeed rise again from that grave. And it all begins with this thought. He opened not his mouth. As the, all, as the old song says, silence is golden. Silence is golden. Because you see, that silence was for you. And it was for me. It was for us. It was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It was to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Shall we pray?